The Athletic. Hello there, welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast and thank you for joining us. I'm Ali Maxwell, I've got Mark Carey and Michael Cox with me as ever. Still somewhat reeling from the final day of the Premier League season, but specifically today, previewing the Champions League final between Real Madrid and Liverpool. Just on final day, Mark, sometimes it can be a little anticlimactic. Sometimes it can feel like something of a letdown for the neutral, not on this occasion, uh, with your red hat on, I guess. It's the hope <laughs> that kills you, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it also always has been in the, the lead-up to this final game as well. And there was drama, wasn't there, with obviously Aston Villa going 2-0 ahead. But it's always worth reminding ourselves that Liverpool were never actually ahead in the title race throughout the whole day because they didn't quite get ahead before um, obviously Manchester City came back into it so there was drama there was this slight ray of hope but uh, no it wasn't to be in the end and City are the deserved winners. Michael we had these two teams excellent teams winning machines gunning for a title both of them needing to win against teams ostensibly with with little to play for inferior teams to them and both making pretty heavy weather of it what was the reason for both sides struggling initially at least to put Aston Villa and Wolves away I wonder whether it was a case of nerves certainly Manchester City started very badly I uh, didn't think they played that well in the second half either to be honest but Guardiola did change things at half time changed the way the fullbacks were operating um, went with Cancelo on the right and Zenchenko came on to play on the left. That gave him a bit more width. They played very well down the flanks in the second half. The introduction of Gundogan was was crucial. Um, I didn't see the Liverpool game really until midway through the second half. It was just when Firmino came on. And Firmino came on was absolutely terrible. I like, could barely play a five-yard pass. It was strange. But yeah, you do have to think that maybe nerves did get to the players. Um, but it was great. I thought it was a great final day. And it was nice that both did win in the end. I find all this talk of bottling it just really boring. So the, the fact that both overcame their initial nerves and got a win was a nice way for the title to be decided, I think. You mentioned Gundogan there. He was... Pep Guardiola's third and final sub, the last throw of the dice, if you will, the last opportunity for Pep to make a change of personnel and impact the game. Uh, and that was pretty notable for you uh, as a wider point as well, given the, the rule changes ahead of next season. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was a big choice. It was him or Grealish. And I think uh, in narrative terms, people would have liked Grealish to come on, finally justify the fee against his former team. It was all set up for him to do something spectacular. Um, and you have to think that if... You know, under next season's rules, maybe there would have been a fifth sub and maybe both would have come on. But actually just changing things a little bit to bring on Gundogan, who's so good at those late runs into the box. And obviously two of them proved crucial. I think that was a, a really big change from Guardiola. And, and I must say, it wasn't something I was thinking of. I mean, I was sitting there waiting for, for Grealish to be introduced. He went for Gundogan and that proved crucial. Uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you, Michael, about final day. It was... Peak Cox on Twitter for a few tweets being fired off at the time. One of them uh, celebrating the lesser spotted zero goal difference being achieved in the Premier League. Very rare and not uh, not to be missed. Yeah, I, I don't know why I find it interesting. It just, it feels like the most common goal difference should be zero. <laughs> but I mean, the average goal difference is always zero, but very few teams ever get it. I think this, I need to update my stats from a, a couple of years ago. It was five 
three years ago. I think Sheffield United in their first season and now Manchester United have done it. But it's it's the least common goal difference to end on between like minus 20 and plus seven. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I really don't know why I find it interesting, but I do. Well, a huge gong for Manchester United fans to cling on to from this uh, memorable zero goal difference 21-22 season. Uh, that season is, is finished. The Premier League campaign is over. We are turning our attention to the biggest game in the European football calendar, uh, which takes place on Saturday. Real Madrid against Liverpool in the Champions League final. Madrid going for what would be their fifth Champions League in nine years if they win it. Their 14th overall. Liverpool going for number seven. Uh, Michael... As a matchup, we we hinted at, at the fact that Liverpool Man City looked like it it would be an all English final. It's not. What do you make of this being the fixture? Do you prefer this as a Champions League final? Yeah, I think so. Always want a bit of variety, um, and it's odd that this feels like the one that provides variety, considering they met in the final four years ago, considering they met in the quarter final last year. But it does feel a little bit new. I mean, the Liverpool side of four years ago was very different to the Liverpool side of now. I think even the Liverpool side of last season is very different to the Liverpool side of now because of the centre-back issue they had at the time. Also, from Real's perspective, there's a change of manager. It was Zidane, it's now Ancelotti. So I do think this will be a new game. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I must say I'd have Liverpool as strong favourites, but I look back over the finals that Real have been in over the last 20, 25 years. And I don't think I've ever expected them to win the final. And they keep on doing it. Mark, I guess that's a tricky one to get your own head around. Liverpool likely would have been outsiders to lift the trophy had Manchester City been their opponents. As it is, they are the favourites to win this game against Real Madrid. How does that make you feel? Even as a, a Liverpool fan and any football fan, you want to play and beat the best teams. But if you, yeah, I think if you asked nearly every Liverpool fan, they would have preferred Real Madrid. I don't think there's really any doubt that Liverpool and Manchester City are the, the two best sides in, in Europe. But I think for Liverpool fans, there's probably a few reasons why they want to play Real Madrid. Obviously, it's more of a glamour tie. It just feels right that, that you know, two sides from different countries play each other. Liverpool and Real Madrid, you know, two teams who have or two clubs who have won some of the most European Cups mm. uh, around. And I think they want the revenge of 2018 as well. There was still a bit of an injustice surrounding it. Obviously, the the Carius incident and the, the Ramos and Salah incident. So there's still a bit of bite there as well to kind of get some revenge in the, you know, it, considering it wasn't that long ago. Um, but Real Madrid are no, you know, pushovers. We've, we've spoken about that a lot. You know, they've beaten PSG, Chelsea and City along the way um, probably more made up of individual brilliance than, than a real strong team structure um, but on the note of the, the English finals as well I don't think we really see too many exciting all English finals in, in recent history obviously last season Manchester City and Chelsea was mm. a fairly good game but not too exciting Liverpool Spurs obviously good for, for Liverpool fans but not necessarily the best game itself as well and United Chelsea was it back in two thousand and eight? Okay, obviously finished on on penalties as well. So maybe if it's you know familiarity breeds contempt, there's never too much excitement. Maybe compared to to the European clashes. That twenty eighteen final, which was won three one by Real Madrid, which had a number of other incidents, as you mentioned there, Mark, and had quite an exciting sort of flurry, didn't it? Three goals in twelve minutes at the start of the second half to take it from nil all to to two one. Real Madrid, Michael. Do you think that's the best final, Champions League final f from a neutral point of view in recent years? I think it had lots of incident, but I don't remember particularly enjoying the game, actually. I remember thinking it was quite scrappy and I don't really like 
I mean, the, the the first goal obviously was was quite big with Carrius's mistake. I always think it's a shame when finals are not decided but influenced by kind of freak incidents like that. There was obviously the Ramos Salah incident. There was the Bale goal. There was a lot of incidents, but I didn't think the game overall was particularly good. I actually think the game uh, in 2020 was quite good when Bayern beat PSG 1-0. wasn't action-packed, but there were lots of chances at both ends. I think the XG had it at probably three, three and a half goals overall or something like that. I thought that was a really good game, but it was... But no behind, fans. Yeah, it was no behind fans. closed doors, so it, I kind of feel it shouldn't count. Um, but that was quite a good game. Of course, that's what makes the Champions League final so special. Not just the presence of, of fans, but also tens of thousands of corporates as well, which really <laughs> adds a certain something to the atmosphere, I think we all agree. Uh, so Liverpool are the bookies' favourites to win this. That They haven't beaten Real Madrid in their last five clashes in recent history. It's four defeats and a draw, uh, in fact, Michael, in their last five. Yeah, and even the draw really was a defeat because it was the second leg last year when they were 3-1 down from the first leg. I'm not sure we can read too much into that. I mean, two of those are going back to the Brendan Rodgers era. Um, and like I say, I think Liverpool are a much better side than the final four years ago. But uh, yeah, I mean, Real do seem seem to have an excellent record in this fixture. I mean, even going far back as the, the 2014 time when Liverpool only recently just got really back into the, the Champions League, um, it's more just for the... Nostalgia in a bad way, I suppose. Um, just looking bad back, nostalgia. Bad nostalgia. I kind of looked at the the teams. I remember it was something that I think Brendan Rodgers was quite heavily criticised for of the the team that he set up with at the Bernabeu. I think there was a there was a Premier League game shortly after. I forget which one, and he sort of said he was resting for that. But I got the Liverpool lineup from that 2014 one when they um, when they were defeated only narrowly, I suppose one nil. But it was Simon Mignolet in goal. Alberto Moreno, Colo Toro, Martin Skirtle and Javier Manquillo at the back. Emre Chan, Lucas Leiva, Adam Lallana and Ouijo Allen in the middle with uh, Markovic, Lazar Markovic and Fabio Barini. So that is not a side you really want to set up with at the Bernabeu. So I think there's extenuating circumstances as to why they were maybe not at their strongest then. But um, I think last season there's, there's plenty of caveats, as, as Michael said, with the injuries, even with a, a bit of a stronger side. With all due respect to the names mentioned, all of them professional footballers, which is much better by miles than any of us have ever achieved. Was that a was that a midfield diamond of Chan, Lever, Lalana, and Joe Allen? As I was saying, I don't know whether Lalana maybe played slightly wide, but even the fact that you can't really distinguish exactly what was going on maybe is is quite telling. <laughs> I'd be interested to watch that back and see what the what the setup was. Uh, Michael, remind me what the key takeaways were from last season's quarterfinal, 3-1 on aggregate to Real Madrid, 3-1 first leg lead, 0-0 in the, in the second leg. H how similar might this look with the personnel involved? Well, the first two goals were very similar. Long balls in behind uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, first for Vinicius that he chested down and finished brilliantly. And then the second one for Ferland Mendy that produced uh, a pretty wayward back header or almost a cross header from Alexander Arnold because he miscued it so much. And Marco Asensio was on hand to finish. So I don't know whether it was a deliberate approach from Real Madrid. Both those passes were from uh, Tony Kroos. Um, but it did look like they were trying to pepper Alexander Arnold with long balls. And you have to think that, you know, his battle against Vinicius is pretty important. I'm always slightly reluctant to read too much into kind of individual clashes between centre-backs and centre-forwards and in midfield because I just don't think football always works out that way on the pitch. But winger against a fullback, you have to say that is often a real individual duel. 
And uh, Alexander-Arnold, not known for his solid defending, though, although I, I think he was excellent in the cup final, actually, defensively. And um, I can imagine Alexander-Arnold will be watching back the tapes and just having a think about how he plays Vinicius. I think there was a lot of narrative around that time as well. Of I think it was maybe near enough around the England squad being announced that there was just so much questions around Trent Alexander-Arnold around that sort of fixture. So I think there were kind of all eyes were on him, maybe when his confidence was down a little bit as well. But I think kind of, as you say, Michael, there's, there's so much more context from a team dynamic. So that was when Ozan Kabak and, and Nat Phillips was playing a centre-back in, in that game as well. So it, well, in both of those those legs last season. So... I mean, with the greatest respect to those two players as well, but Ozan Kabak obviously just got relegated with Norwich and Nat Phillips doing well or did well at, with uh, Bournemouth in the Championship. But, you know, you think of those playing against Real Madrid in the Champions League only last season, it it's quite, you know, quite stark contrast. But I think as well with the Trent Alexander-Arnold thing, because I think he didn't want to maybe venture too far forward because he knew that Nat Phillips maybe couldn't cover the the pace quite as well against Vinicius that it wasn't too much of a who goes first who blinks first because Trent Alexander-Arnold couldn't maybe get us forward and obviously have as much of an imposing attacking threat as well so this time around hopefully if he has the cover probably maybe Henderson on that right side and um, with midfield in midfield covering him and obviously we can come on to whether it's Canate or Matic maybe on the the mm. right hand side of center back but I think he'll he'll look to take the game more you know forward rather than being only focused on a defensive display in terms of Trent Alexander-Arnold. It's a fascinating game of, of cat and mouse between Trent and, and Vinicius, isn't it? Because as you mentioned there, Mark, it, it's not just, we shouldn't just look at it through the lens of, oh, Trent can be can be hurt by Vinicius, particularly in transition. But of course, if Trent is given too much time and space on the ball, if Vinicius maybe decides to to cheat defensively, by which I mean stay higher up the pitch uh, and, and let Trent move forward in order to to potentially have a start a head start on the counter attack then that's where Trent Alexander Arnold can set up chance after chance with the with the space to deliver as well so it really is a, a very obvious sort of key clash i think in this game michael based on what you've seen from liverpool and real madrid in big games this season individually what do you think the the rhythm of this game will be how will this game look tactically at least while it's still nil nil I think Liverpool dominate possession. I've been surprised at how defensive Real have been at times in this Champions League campaign. I think maybe part of that has been they've been away from home and there's no away goals rule, so there's less incentive really to to dominate and try to score goals. But I look back to that game against PSG where I think Real were probably very scared of uh, the speed of PSG's forwards and they sat very deep. I mean, they really didn't want to allow them any opportunities to break. Eventually, Mbappe did use his speed in a couple of situations and scored. But yeah, I, I think Liverpool will have a lot of the ball. And I think Real Madrid, obviously, they've got Modric, they've got Crows who can who can dominate the game when required. But I think Liverpool will have a lot of a lot of possession and it'll maybe be uh, long balls up to, to Benzema's feet. Uh, Vinicius on the break. But uh, yeah, I, I would expect Liverpool to be in, in command of the game. I wonder as well, for all that we're saying, how strong obviously Vinicius is and, and Real Madrid's left side is, whether or not Liverpool will look to, I don't know, Liverpool are very strong on their right side, but maybe look to get the ball more to the left-hand side and maybe get Luis Diaz, who I imagine will start on the left side, sort of isolated against, I don't know whether it would be Lucas Vasquez or Danny Carvajal, I'm not too sure who might start, but um, you know, knowing that they're Real Madrid's right-hand side maybe isn't quite as strong to maybe build up a little bit down the right, but maybe switch it to the left and get Luis Diaz isolated because he's been electric since he started in the league and the, the Champions League. Um, 
you know, in a Liverpool shirt. So I wonder whether that would be a, a tactic as well. Yeah, I think it'd be Carver Howe at right back. And I think he's a funny one because I think he's really struggled at times actually in this Champions League campaign. I've almost thought Real really need to find a replacement for him in the summer and not someone like Vasquez, who's just a converted winger. Um, but I must say, in the final stages of that incredible comeback against City, he was suddenly electric going forward, just hmm. found a kind of extra burst of energy and was brilliant on the overlap. But defensively, I think he struggled quite badly. Um, and yeah, I think I agree with you. I think Diaz could target him. So, Mark, would you be expecting a Luis Diaz, Sadio Mane, Mo Salah front three with Mane playing through the middle? I think so, yeah. I think Mane's done brilliantly as well since he's come into, into the middle. I think when Michael spoke about it previously, um, and we spoke about it obviously on this podcast, that he's he's just almost found a new lease of life because he was struggling a little bit last season. He did okay at the start of this season, but I think he's just been able to drop into pockets and make later runs and stuff. So I think that Mane through the middle will be um, will certainly be the, the favoured option, especially because Firmino, I still think, is trying to get back up to to full fitness and full form. So I think at the moment, there's, there's no doubt that's the, the best front three of, of the, all the options. And Michael, can we trust Klopp's Liverpool to get the press right, to have the right sort of plan in place and to execute it against Real Madrid compared to... Chelsea's performance particularly in the first leg at Stamford Bridge where it, it looked like they really didn't get to grips with Real Madrid and allowed them to build up the ball fairly simply it seems unlikely that Liverpool will let that happen here yeah I think they will press I, I think the interesting thing will be in midfield because I think Fabinho will probably push really high and go up on to uh, Casemiro I think Fabinho it can be a risky tactic to do that but I think Fabinho tends to uh, to get his decision making right so I think they will press quite aggressively um and obviously the the you know the big factor is the high defensive line um which I think Vinicius will lick his lips at I think Liverpool play that really well um but as we saw in the game last year Vinicius can can time those runs very well himself Uh, This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. In part two, we're going to look at a few more selection questions for both Ancelotti and Klopp. And then we'll look back at the last few weeks and and wonder uh, which team's domestic situation might have helped them heading into this game. That's up next. So it seems pretty clear that you guys are both focused on Vinicius Jr. against Trent Alexander-Arnold and that matchup so to speak down that side of the pitch two of the best players in world football age 23 or under Uh, Mark you hinted at the fact that an interesting Klopp selection decision comes next to Trent uh, in the right centre-back position why is that and and who are the options yeah I think it's something we spoke about in this this podcast before in terms of uh, Ibrahim Akanate being essentially chosen for most of the Champions League games and Matip playing other cup, um, although maybe not in the FA Cup actually, but but for league games being being certainly a, the man next to to Virgil Van Dijk. So whether or not Klopp will stick with Kanate on the right centre back, I'm not sure. I think this is why we've spoke about it before again. As I say, that there's they both have got their their strengths and weaknesses, if you want to call them that. I think Kanate's he's strong, he's powerful, he's quick, so that could really combat Vinicius Junior. But then Matip is so good in a 1v1 situation. He's really good at just shepherding any potential danger just away, probably more towards either the byline or to the touchline, but maybe isn't quite as fast. But then he's he has really good strengths on the ball as well. He can play, he can carry the ball forward and he can play really cutting um, through balls and progressive passes. So 
I, I genuinely don't know the answer. It would be too tight to call. Um, but I think that there's, yeah, there's probably a case to be made for, for Matip to actually come back um, in for this, even though he hasn't been the, the main choice at right centre-back for, for the Champions League. It's a big decision, isn't it? I think I'd be leaning towards Konate just from what we've spoken about uh, in terms of Vinicius and, and Trent and how that might look. Uh, but yeah, big decision. Uh, of course, the other central defender for Liverpool is always Virgil van Dijk and, and he's got Karim Benzema to handle, uh, two of the best players in world football full stop let alone young players Michael you hinted at the fact that you know when you're talking about individual key matchups across the pitch striker versus centre-back doesn't quite work as well why do you think that well because if I'm Benzema I'm not playing up against Van Dijk um, for two reasons one because the other centre-back is is weaker albeit I like Kanate and I very much like Matip as well um, so I'd try and play up against him instead and second, because I think Benzema and Vinicius combine really well, not just kind of on the ball with combinations and one-twos, but, you know, if Benzema can drag that centre-back up and then that increases the space for Vinicius to run in behind, I think that's a very profitable uh, alleyway, if you like, for Real Madrid. So, um, yeah, Van Dijk's brilliant and no one ever dribbles past him, but part of that is because people have stopped trying. It's It's got to be a team effort for Liverpool when it comes to Benzema, doesn't it, Mark? Because his movement is so good and so intelligent. Yeah, and this is where I think that whether or not Fabinho will be able to start because he's a, a fitness doubt, I think that's going to be so key. Obviously, it looks like Thiago is also going to miss the final because he's a fitness doubt. So that midfield is going to be really key because the way that, that Benzema is so intelligent with dropping off, you know, dropping into pockets of space, I think that Liverpool are going to have to be make sure that they pass him on you know as, as Michael said he's not going to stand on the the uh, the defensive line and just be up against Virgil van Dijk if Virgil van Dijk plays as well he's, he's not played the last couple of games because of injury so we're saying this on the assumption that he definitely will start which he like he should um, so yeah they're going to have to be really key with obviously communication and passing Benzema on and making sure that if it is Fabinho that, that he's covering because as Michael said he might be also be pushing on to, to Casemiro as well. So it's just making sure that the, the team dynamic looks after the two most dangerous players, which is Vinicius Jr. and, and Karim Benzema. So Van Dijk missed the game against Wolves on, on final day and Michael, Liverpool looked incredibly vulnerable on the break. Wolves, having scored in transition after three minutes, had a good few other opportunities. Now, the, the, the state of the match, the state of the title race probably dictated that to a certain extent, but Van Dijk's absence was hard to ignore as well. What is it about him, or rather the absence of him, that makes them look so much more vulnerable, particularly in transition? Is it to do with his profile, his style of play, or about his organisation, his leadership skills? I think the organisation is a big factor because Liverpool squeeze the place so much. I mean, it's quite extreme how high their defensive line is. And I think you do need someone to, to basically organise that. And I actually wonder when, you know, going back a little bit, but just on the Konate uh, Matip thing, I wonder whether Van Dijk has a preference. I mean, you think he mm. must have a preference. Um, I don't know. I just wonder whether Klopp would consult Who him. do you think his preference would be, if you had to guess? I actually don't know. I wonder whether it would be Konate just because I think he's probably more recovery pace I, hmm. I don't know I'd probably say that even though I think Matip is I just think he's brilliant on the ball Matip and I I would always from a neutral's perspective I'd always rather Matip play because I think he's just really fun to watch but I reckon Van Dijk probably just for this game would probably prefer Kanate. but I don't think it'd be unreasonable for Klopp to basically go and ask Van Dijk which which do you want <laughs> now the midfield 
battleground is going to be key here, as it always is in these sorts of games. And Michael, as long as everyone's fit, I think Real Madrid's picks itself, Kroos, Modric, Casemiro, they are and have been fairly imperious in big games for a long stretch now. What is it about those three and their blend that makes them so good in these types of matches? Well, I think they're all very comfortable on the ball. That probably goes without saying. But what I like about them, in particular Modric and Kroos, is they come very deep and go very wide to receive the ball. And it just feels like they... You never really see Real kind of struggling to play out from defence because they're so flexible with their positioning and they're happy to receive the ball anywhere. Particularly Tony Kroos almost plays like a... I don't know, defensive inside left kind of channel at times rather than in midfield. Um, and the good thing about Real this season is that they've been able to freshen things up when needed. I mean, in that game against Manchester City, they ended up, or Ancelotti ended up subbing the whole midfield three and they ended up with Valverde who started on the right and dropped in. And then Camavinga, who has been absolutely brilliant as a substitute in the Champions League. And you have to think, we'll probably be starting these kind of games next year. Hmm. I don't think it's unreasonable he starts in this game, actually, I must say. I mean, considering how he's he's quick, he's more mobile than those three against a very energetic Liverpool side, he probably won't. But I think I'd be considering it if I was Ancelotti. Um, But yeah, probably will be the usual three. And they are, I mean, like I say, I'm not sure Real Madrid are going to have long spells of possession here. But if they do need to, they, they do have the three who can do that. And their movement's so good, Mark, particularly off the ball and, and finding pockets in which to receive it that... You know, it's pretty hard to get a, a grip on. Uh, it's a big choice for Jurgen Klopp to, to to decide who plays in his midfield three, another area of the pitch where, if everyone's fit in particular, he has a few different options, a few different horses for different courses. Yeah, well, as you say, as you both say, that, that Real Madrid midfield is just so experienced so they know what to do and when to do it. Yeah, with Liverpool, I think it is so conditional on on the injury and the fitness, you know, news, because I think if, if everyone were to be fit, I think it would, you know, no one would argue that it would be Fabinho sort of holding the defensive midfield role, Thiago on the left and, and Henderson on the right. But if, if Thiago look, like, looks like he is going to, to miss out, so that would maybe mean that Cater comes in um, on the left-hand side, which he can do. But then if Fabinho is injured as, as well or doesn't quite make it, then it'll probably mean that Henderson will be the defensive midfielder and then Cater might play on the, the right. And then would you maybe bring in James Milner for, for the industry and the, the energy that he can maybe bring, even though he's, he's not what's got happened as much... To, what's happened to Oxlade? True. He's, yeah, he's, he's not even, even got any minutes off the bench in, in recent weeks. It just seems to have gone very quiet there. I don't think he's he's got any injury issues at all. It's it's quite a strange one. I think that, well, Harvey Elliott and, and Curtis Jones came in for, for the Southampton game. It was they were heavily rotated. Um, I don't think Harvey Elliott would be coming in here, but I think Curtis Jones might have a shout on the, the left side, but I think it's that trade-off between the the industry, the, the workman-like uh, attributes that, that Milner offers and maybe being a bit more attacking and taking the game to to Real Madrid if it was Curtis Jones because he's you know he can go either side he's got a shot in him he can link up really well on that that left hand side of the midfield so I'd probably go for a bit of experience with with Milner if if all of those situations were to occur and Fabinho were to miss out as well as Thiago but hopefully I think Fabinho will be fit enough to start and I think it'll be him with Henderson on the right and Cater on the left. And if we expect Liverpool to dominate possession and Real Madrid to be happy sitting deeper for, for large parts of this game. Thiago's potential injury, if he does miss, feels like, if I'm honest, a huge blow for Liverpool. And very specifically in terms of ball progression, chance creation, a blend of those two. We know that Liverpool 
fullbacks create a large proportion of their chances and that is been pretty repeatable over the years but it feels like Thiago in the midfield three has brought something that the others albeit perfectly good passes uh, just can't offer don't have that invention that vision um, to execute a pass which can be crucial in, in matches like this against teams sitting deep yeah he's he's so good in in those sort of latter areas of the pitch obviously going from the mid to the to the attacking third he, he's got such an eye for a pass as again we've spoken about in recent weeks but he's really key in the build-up as well he really enjoys picking it straight from the the either central defender um, and really just getting things ticking over with a lot of switches and just making sure that you're pulling the opposition from side to side and obviously his range of passing is so key whereas I don't think you know Milner for example has that quite as much to to dictate the game so I think it will be a massive loss if as I say it looks like he's not going to be able to play any part at all um, and I think what he does offer as well which he didn't quite get up to speed with last season is just how much industry he does have off the ball. I think he's. I think Klopp said recently that he screamed at him like, "You taught me how to run," because <laughs> he he really is a lot stronger in his in his pressing and knowing the sort of the team dynamic, and he's really attuned to the way that Liverpool play. And it's just a shame that on the final day of the season for you know, in the Premier League, he's he's picked up that injury. Michael, what can Liverpool learn from Real Madrid's knockout games? Uh, they haven't always looked to be playing that well, frankly, and they have very rarely been dominating their opposition, albeit very, very tough opposition as knockout football goes in PSG, Chelsea and Man City. They have managed to find a way to win each time. What will Liverpool have learned from that? I think the only thing really to learn is that they can change the momentum of the game quite dramatically in the second half, particularly with the use of subs. I think that's what Angelotti's done really well on a couple of occasions. Uh, Rodrigo in particular has made a big difference in two games, coming on down the right, scoring big goals. So, yeah, I mean, if Liverpool are seemingly in command of the game in the second half, maybe 2-0 up, something like that, there's every chance Real can just completely change the way that they play and have a good spell of dominance. But aside from that, if we're being honest, the lesson from the, the, the knockout games is, one, they're not a great side in Champions League winning terms. And two, Benzema can just turn a game in in really I know it's a bit of a cliche to use this word but at times he has been unstoppable I mean he's getting he gets the ball in positions the centre-backs aren't going to go into and then fires the ball into parts of the goal the goalkeeper's not going to stop to a certain extent you can't do anything about it so <laughs> yeah I, I mean I, I think Liverpool are really strong favourites um, but uh, yeah like I said earlier I've counted out Rao a lot and been uh, been made to look silly so Maybe I shouldn't again, and yet I still am. <laughs> Stick to your guns. I think once you, I think once you start changing predictions based on going against what your gut's telling you, Michael, then then you're in a world of trouble. Then you're just you're out at sea without a without a paddle. Um, does it help or hinder Liverpool that they had to go right down to the wire for the title race? Real Madrid, almost the opposite, wrapped up that title a, a good few weeks ago in La Liga. Since then, they've lost one, drawn two and won one, taking their foot off the gas somewhat uh, domestically, whereas Liverpool have had to remain competitive on multiple fronts all the way uh, up to, to last weekend. Who does that help or hinder? I think I'd prefer to be in Real's situation. And I think it's about the specifics here. If, if Liverpool had just been going for the title and it had been, they were playing Saturday, 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 fine. But they haven't had a free midweek since March. That's a long time. And it's also a Sunday to Saturday turnaround, which isn't disastrous, but it's not quite a week off. I think it does make a small difference. And I mean, they had extra time in the FA Cup final. 
they've got the slight deflation of not winning the league. I think that is that is a factor compared to if they had a you know had triumph yes, uh, yesterday. So yeah, I think I'd be I prefer to be in in Real's situation in that respect. I think as well, just to kind of comment on the last time Liverpool were in a, a Champions League final, it was it was quite extreme. Just the, that gap between when they played their final game of the season and uh, and obviously the Champions League final. They they played their final game of the season on the twelfth of May, and then they played the final on the first of June. So that's you know over two weeks there. And I think they had a, a sort of another training camp, and I think they went maybe to Spain to to try and just have a bit of change of scenery and start again and almost keep up some sort of match fitness even though they weren't able to to play games so i think if it's too far you know too, too much of a gap between games then i think that would actually affect the the flow and the rhythm of the the game and the team itself so it's in some ways it is just all about men- momentum and just keeping match fitness but having it the way that it was a couple of years ago just, just doesn't feel right Okay, well, this is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. One short final part to come. I'll be bringing up this pretty mad stat, which bodes very well for Real Madrid and asking the guys if it has any relevance whatsoever. Stay with us. So I'm going to present a statistic which was tweeted out by the writer and journalist Colin Miller and it was flagged up by a listener called Sammy. So thanks to, to both of those for providing the foundation for our chat in the last part here. Sammy wanted us to try and explain the following, presented by Colin. Since 2001, Spanish teams have played non-Spanish teams 16 times in European finals, that is Champions League and Europa League finals. Spanish sides have won all 16 of them. Now, there's seven Champions League examples and nine Europa League finals. Let me just lay out the seven Champions League wins by year and by fixture. In 2002, Real Madrid beat Bayer Leverkusen 2-1. 2006, Barca beat Arsenal 2-1. And 2009, Barca beat Manchester United 2-0. They did the same in 2011, beating Manchester United 3-1. Barca beat Juve 3-1 in 2015. Real beat Juve 4-1 in 2017. And in 2018, Real Madrid 3, Liverpool 1. Seven Champions League finals for Spanish teams, by which we mean Real Madrid and Barcelona. Seven victories. Michael, how on earth can this be true? Yeah, I hadn't really thought about this until you uh, pointed it out, or until a listener pointed it out. Um, I mean, it is remarkable. They are, I mean, it, it was an era, particularly the last decade or so, it was an era where Barcelona and Real Madrid often were the teams to beat in European competition. But even so, yeah, absolutely amazing. A couple of, you know, quite comprehensive victories in there, particularly the Barcelona ones. Um, and then a couple that they've, squeezed out uh, Real Madrid against Leverkusen and the earlier Barcelona one against Arsenal when they're 1-0 down for a long period. But yeah, by hook or by crook, they are... I mean, it's an incredible run of results. (laughs) So I was wary that the truest answer or the most likely answer might be something along the lines of, well, a bit of variance, a bit of randomness that comes with football results and, you know, don't look into it too much. I didn't want that to be the end of this discussion. So I just came up with a few potential options to to put to you guys, really. I'm not even sure about them myself, but I thought it'd be interesting to, to flag it up. Michael, the first one was, could it be something to do with the rhythm and tempo of your average La Liga game reflecting the rhythm and tempo of a major European final a little more than a a Premier League game or perhaps a Bundesliga game? 
That's maybe true. It's not a bad shout. And I think you could make an argument that the rhythm and the tempo and the level of physicality in Spain kind of means the players are less drained than in other European leagues. Yeah, that could be a factor. Uh, The only other thing I've got here is what about sort of footballing intelligence, footballing IQ and and I suppose tactical superiority, uh, the sort of thing that might be understanding the ebbs and flows of a final, not um, expending too much energy too early, understanding that the big moments are likely to come later on in the game because they're often tight. A sort of game management aspect to it. Would the Spanish clubs have any particular reason to be stronger than anyone else on that front? Well, I think Spain has produced a lot of very good midfield players or in Real Madrid's case, bought in some very good uh, midfield players. So yeah, I I think there is probably something to do with game intelligence. I mean, you look at the the list of teams there and you look at the midfielders, I mean, from Makaleli and Zidane to Xavi and Iniesta to Modric and Kroos. Yeah, there are midfielders who can command the game in all of those sides. And you wouldn't necessarily say that about some of their opponents looking in those games. The Liverpool side of 2018, I don't think, was that strong in midfield. Manchester United in 2011 certainly weren't with their 11 for the final. Um, Arsenal in 2006 to a certain extent. But yeah, the the midfield dominance, I think, has been certainly a pattern. I completely agree in terms of the the quality of the player and the quality of the midfield as well. The the only other thing I could maybe suggest is a bit of kind of momentum and, and Champions League final experience because they've got the... You know, in a couple of occasions, they had the same, same-ish squad. So you look at the, the Barcelona one in 2009 and 2011, there wasn't too much of a huge change in, in terms of personnel. Um, the Real Madrid one, obviously, back-to-back, 2017, 2018 as well. So just knowing to, how to, to get through the final, obviously, uh, win it in the end. So my only 10 cents there is a bit of, bit of game experience, a bit of tournament experience at the highest level. And then in, in the Europa League, you've got another batch of Spanish clubs, four of them in total, who have won nine consecutive Europa League finals against non-Spanish teams. Uh, Valencia beating Marseille in 04. Sevilla, of course, kings of the Europa League, beating Borough, Middlesbrough, that is, in 06. Uh, beating Benfica in 2014. Dnipro in 2015. And Liverpool in 2016. And Inter in 2020. Atletico have won two. Uh, one against Fulham in 2010. And one against Marseille in 2018. And then Villarreal beat Manchester United, albeit on penalties, uh, in the well, in the last campaign in 2021 Michael the the second tier of Spanish teams are just as good as as Real and Barca when it comes to consistency in these finals is it is there anything in in the Europa League sense of them taking it more seriously yeah I think there maybe is I mean I think Spanish clubs clearly have taken the whole competition very seriously more so than the bigger English side so I think I've tended to think it was a bit of a waste of time until there was this spot for uh, getting into the Champions League, which is a relatively recent innovation and has been a real uh, incentive for Manchester United and Arsenal uh, at various points. Um, And compared to the German sides, I mean, they've underachieved massively in the Europa League. Um, Obviously, Frankfurt won it last week, but that was the first time since 1998 when really this was a completely different competition with two-legged finals, which seems just seems absolutely prehistoric to have a two-legged UEFA Cup final. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, the record is incredible. Sevilla responsible for a lot of that. Um, again, there's been a couple of a couple of games that teams have won convincingly. Sevilla against Middlesbrough. Actually, Sevilla against Liverpool was a really 
quite a dominant victory as well. And then a couple where they've squeezed it out. I mean, two on penalties. Atleti against Fulham. I think they got really lucky in that game. I think Fulham were were, were pretty good. And it was, a I think, 116th minute goal from Forlan or something. So again, I don't know whether there's anything linking these, but it is a, a fantastic run. That severe record especially is is just unbelievable across all those years. And obviously, Unai Emery missed the Europa League, I should say, um, who's just got he's just got Europa League on lockdown, obviously, with with Sevilla and then at Villarreal uh, last season as well. So massive credit to, to them. They've pretty much yeah got that one locked down. It's a remarkable stat. Is it in any way relevant, Michael, to this Champions League final? Um, I don't think it is, but it does maybe... It does add kind of to the aura of Real Madrid and just the fact that they can win without playing really well and the Spanish teams have such a good record. Uh, yeah, it's the kind of thing that maybe persuades you that this is more of a contest than we are led to believe because I think most people think Liverpool are strong favourites. Yeah, I wonder what the obviously the perception is in Spain because it just feels kind of nailed on that Liverpool are strong favourites and they are going to walk all over Real Madrid when you know if they do go completely toe to toe and you know they play how we expect them to. And I don't think it is going to be quite as simple as that. So I think everyone needs to respect, as weird as that sounds, respect Real Madrid more for what they've achieved in recent years, even if they they aren't the strongest Real Madrid side that we've we've seen. Um, as you said, you see this could be the fifth time in nine years, Ali. That's that's mad, you know, as a stat. So you can never count them out. Yeah, that aura means that, albeit deep down and after everything we've discussed, everything you guys have, have spoken about over the whole season about these two teams, I agree with the bookmakers' odds that Liverpool are the stronger team and the more likely winners. And yet, Real have, have definitely got in my head, Michael, and maybe in yours as well. And I think if pushed for a prediction after everything you've said, I, I think I'm going one or draw extras. And probably, <laughs> probably, I think Real would be able to sit on extra time if they needed to, if felt they needed to, and take the game to penalties. So uh, I, I don't know enough about Real Madrid's penalty prowess or Courtois' penalty-saving record to, to definitively pick a winner on pens. But I wouldn't be surprised, Michael, if we get all the way there. What do you think? You could be right. I must say, I really hope not. Just because we've had FA Cup decide on pens, League Cup decide on pens... Europa League final decided on pens. I don't object to penalties in themselves, but sooner or later you do just want to see a final one fair and square in normal time. Or I do anyway. So I would prefer no penalties. I'm also slightly biased because I, I'm, I'm doing a big cycle ride on the Sunday and I have to be up about 4.30 in the morning. So <laughs> if I can just have an early night, that would actually suit me quite nicely. Thank you. <laughs> The funny thing is, I was trying to lead you down the path to a prediction, not a preference. I don't care what you prefer. I want you to. <laughs> I, I, I want your prediction. Th- I say three-one to Liverpool. I, I think. I think they're a better team. They're a much better team than Real Madrid. I think the 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 main factor is not Real Madrid's history in this competition, or the history against Liverpool, or Spanish sides' um, history in the final. Much as I do like those stats, I think the midfield. If Fabinho and Thiago are both out. That does change things quite a lot, I think. Not just their absence, but the knock-on effect. Henderson might have to play the deep role. Then he can't be on the right to overlap with Salah. Then he can't protect Alexander-Arnold. I think that's a key factor. Oh, this is hard to sort of think of objectively. I think both sides will score. Um, I think Michael's right about it. It's very much dependent on the starting lineups. Um, I think that Liverpool edge it 2-1. 
I think. It will go close. Um, it'll go, yeah, right to the wire, but I think it'll be 2-1 to Liverpool. Well, I think it's set up to be, hopefully, one for the ages. I think there's so many interesting aspects to this personnel-wise, tactically, uh, in the dugouts as well. We've done full episodes on Ancelotti recently, on Klopp over the years as well. Uh, and I cannot wait to watch this one on Saturday night. A huge thank you to Mark and to Michael for, for talking me through it, for breaking down uh, one match in such detail, with such insight as well. Of course, you can read the best Champions League final coverage around on the Athletic site with so many writers contributing. Uh, Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the best place to go. In order to do that, you'll pay just £1 a month for the first six months. £1 a month for the first six months of your annual subscription. Uh, that is also the final for us, the last podcast of the 21-22 season from the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Uh, that's 44 episodes since the first week of August. Uh, and myself mark and michael have absolutely loved every single one a huge thank you to uh, any guests any non-regulars that have contributed to the podcast this year but a personal thanks to mark and michael for putting so much time and effort into providing such interesting content uh, every week and, and making it so easy for myself just to flip some questions their way uh, thank you to everyone who's listened everyone who's shared kind messages of thanks and support over this season and those who have suggested topics for discussion as well like sammy uh, a few weeks ago we'll be back at the start of july so just a few weeks off a uh, raring to go in july on this pod feed in the meantime if you miss us why not take a look at our back catalogue we've been going now for two and a half years which seems crazy uh, so some episodes you may have missed from 2020 or 2021 if you only started listening recently dare I recommend one on goal scoring goalkeepers that was quite good fun early on uh, one on the Makalele role January 2020 uh, an episode with James Horncastle might be a good one to listen back to from September 2020, where we discussed AC Milan's reawakening. Just a year and a half later, they've notched their first Scudetto in just over a decade. Uh, bad Stats with Warville, that's one if you want to listen to some more analytics chat. And of course, uh, a popular three-part glossary of positions uh, broken down into roles in attack, in midfield and defence. So give those a go. Uh, make sure you subscribe so that when we are back in July, you are straight back on the horse. It's been an absolute pleasure this year on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We'll chat to you again in just a few weeks' time. The Athletic.